This episode of Local Knowledge is brought to you by Ping, the family-owned company that's been helping golfers enjoy the game for more than 60 years. What started in the garage of a frustrated golfer has grown into one of the most respected equipment brands in the game by bringing golfers what they want most, lower scores. Linda Volstead was the women's golf coach at Arizona State for more than 20 years. She won six national titles. But when she played college golf herself, the experience was pretty modest. Back then, the men had everything and the women had very little. The men got to hit balls at a country club and we got to hit balls in a, in a field in the back of one of the arenas. <laughs> and so wow. there really wasn't uh it wasn't we didn't have the same thing that the that the men had and again we always wondered how come the men get to go play at the country clubs and and we are stuck here and it was just well that's just the way it is and even though it wasn't right that was the way it was these days women's college teams fly to tournaments train in elite gyms and play on perfectly manicured golf courses with the latest equipment wearing the best performance apparel it's hard to imagine that just several decades ago, the conditions Volstead described were the norm. The difference between then and now? Linda was playing college golf before Title IX, before universities in the United States had to take women's collegiate athletics seriously. An amendment to the Civil Rights Act, which granted women and girls equal access to federally funded education and related programs. But it's most commonly known as the bill that gave girls equal access to sports. At the time, only one in every 27 high school athletes was female. I'm Keely Levins, and this week on Local Knowledge, we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of Title IX. It's a law that has had sweeping ramifications across our country, and in sports especially. And yes, that includes golf. In ways that you might expect, and in ways that you wouldn't. So this week, we talked to players and coaches to see what life was like for female college golfers before the revolutionary law was signed into effect in 1972, and how the enactment of that law has changed women's college golf and these individuals' lives forever. Because when we look at the thriving women's game today, it's possible to trace its success back to the pivotal legislation half a century ago. Linda Volstead has been part of women's college golf for decades, longer than Title IX has been in existence, and she still works for Arizona State as a developmental director. I grew up in a neighborhood of a bunch of boys, and and we played football and baseball and basketball, and I was out there in the middle of all of it because I was a little tomboy and I just loved sports, and, and I couldn't figure out why I they got to go play baseball games, real games, and I couldn't. And I would just say to my dad, Dad, how come I don't get to play when they have, when the, my brothers get to go play? And he said, well, honey, little girls just don't play sports like that. And I was just appalled, like, well, but I want to play. I want to play. So what happened from that was I said, well, do little girls play golf? And he said, yes, honey, little girls play golf. And I said, well, will you take me to the golf course and and teach me how to play golf. And so that's how my career in golf started was because there really wasn't anything else that I could participate in. 
What Linda experienced was the norm for women growing up in the pre-Title IX era. Sports were for men and boys. All of the benefits that people get from playing sports, like growing up on teams and learning how to compete and set goals and achieve, all of that was just for the guys. Women missed out on all of that. So um, you're in for a a wonderful treat this morning. You're going to get a clear, unvarnished view, Chris's perspective. The subject of our talk this morning is the impact of Title IX, the enduring impact of this uh, legislation uh, after it was initiated. Please join me in welcoming Christine Brennan. Chris? Christine Brennan is an award-winning columnist for USA Today, author and TV commentator. What happened over time, and it's certainly taken time, it didn't happen overnight, but what happened over time was uh, an opening of the floodgates for girls and women to play sports just like their brothers had for generations. And uh, it really gave uh, women an opportunity to have some kind of equal footing with men in terms of sports, in terms of sports opportunities, and, and even more important than creating Olympic gold medalists or or college scholarship athletes, uh, it has allowed the other 50% of our population, 51% actually, uh, women, uh, girls and women, to learn incredible life lessons through sports. You learn not only how to win, you learn how to lose at a very young age. You learn about teamwork, you learn about sportsmanship. With Title IX, letting women experience all of this became a requirement. Title IX was signed by Richard Nixon in 1972 with the goal of creating a fair educational environment. Prior to Title IX, women didn't have the same educational opportunities as men. The law was written to make sure that someone's sex wasn't the reason they couldn't access educational opportunities, like getting admitted to law school. It reads, No person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any educational program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. Though most people associate Title IX with women's sports, you'll notice sports wasn't specifically referenced there. Title IX is about all educational opportunities, and women's college sports just happens to be one of the many activities that falls under Title IX. Sports might not have been the sole focus of Title IX, but the effect on women's athletics was huge. Because of Title IX, colleges and universities had to offer the same opportunities for women and men athletes proportionally. So that means if your student body is 45% female, 45% of the sports offerings have to be for women. 45% of the sports scholarship money also has to be for women athletes. This is where Title IX has gotten some bad press. If you're a school with many more men's teams than women's, there's two ways to even out the numbers, by adding more women's sports or by cutting men's sports. Obviously, the latter wasn't too popular. We used to hear from wrestlers and uh and unfortunately Olympic sports that would get cut, slashed and burned by male athletic directors um, who failed so miserably to start to implement the law that allowed it to be implemented over time. And as we know, a very, very lenient way to uh, to have a law come into effect. 
and athletic directors still made such terrible mistakes or ignored the law for so long, especially at big football schools, um, that then when parents got exasperated and young women got exasperated and went to the courts and, fought, and reluctantly filed lawsuits, uh, of course, here's a shock, a U.S. court saying equality is important. Yeah, you know, U.S. women, or the women in the United States one time and time and time again, and then universities had to uh, allow women have opportunities and instead of trying to figure that out athletic directors just cut men's sports mm -hmm. and so we should not blame a great law for the ineptitude of male athletic directors over the years for many schools however adding women's sports was a way to become compliant with title IX. therefore ensuring the institution would still receive federal funding that's when colleges and universities realized that they could start a women's uh, golf program and that would be helpful for their numbers for the Title IX and to be in compliance. Thanks to Title IX, women's college golf saw enormous growth. In 1982, 739 women competed in Division I golf, with 30.1% of Division I schools having a women's golf program. In 2021, the number jumped to 2,238, with 75.1% of D1 programs having a women's college golf program. Beyond adding more women's athletic programs, Title IX helped normalize women as athletes. The seventh consecutive year, the same venue hosting the women's and men's NCAA Division I championships. Greyhawk Golf Club, the Raptor course in Scottsdale, Arizona. First time ever women's match play. We have number one versus number two. The individual champion delivers the team championship for the Stanford Cardinal. With collegiate programs out there to aspire to, girls like Linda, who'd wanted to play sports, had a clear goal that the people around them could rally behind. If you're driving through your neighborhood, anyone driving through any neighborhood in the United States, let's say today, and as you're going by a field, a school field, or just a big, you know, field or something, and you see a whole bunch of either girls, high school age girls or women, uh, obviously older than high school, um, out playing, whether they're practicing softball or uh, lacrosse or kicking a soccer ball around or playing rugby or whatever they might do be doing on a field, just like 20, 25, 30 women on a field together playing a sport. Do you give that a second look as you drive by? No, of course not. And you might go by another field a, mi a mile later and you might see the same thing. All women out there in the fall, field hockey or, you know, whatever, whatever the right sport would be for the right time period. You don't even give it a second thought. 50 years ago, if you were to drive by a field and see one girl or woman out on that field, you would have done a double take or a triple take. And the odds are that girl or woman was, well, especially if it was a girl, that girl was out there telling her brother it was time to come home for dinner. When you're a family-owned company like Ping that's been in the golf business for more than 60 years, it's clear you've earned the trust of generations of golfers. If you've ever played a Ping driver, iron, wedge, or putter, you know what we're talking about. The engineers at Ping go to great lengths to make sure their newest products are always better than the previous version. They like to say that the product speaks for itself. 
We've heard that a lot. So if you haven't tested one of their products, it's time you experience a Ping custom fitting. They fit every club in the bag to help you play your best, from the popular G425 family to their newest products like the I525 iron, Glide 4.0 wedges, and the PLD milled putters. And once you've been custom fit, your clubs are custom built to your precise specifications. You can't get any more custom than that. Learn more about what sets Ping apart at ping.com. That's P-I-N-G dot com. Linda, who was a female athlete before it was a normal path for a woman, took advantage of the athletic outlet her father had pointed her towards and played golf through college in the 1960s. It was one of the few programs in the schools in the country that had women's golf. There really weren't very many programs that had women's golf, but it was very organized and there weren't any scholarships back then, but we were were able to uh, play golf and get an education and And so that's how I got started at ASU. So by the time Linda was coaching in 1980, the law had been passed, but that didn't mean men's and women's sports were immediately treated the same. Like Christine said, some female athletes found themselves in schools that weren't in compliance with Title IX and had to litigate to make it right. I had an office in the storage room in the basement of the arena, and the men's golf coach had a beautiful office with a window and and uh, was lovely, and I was stuck in the basement. He was full-time, I was part-time. I made $8,000 the first year I started coaching, and he made about five times what I made. And we got to play once a week at one of the country clubs, and they were playing all the time. So I had, there was a lot of um, things that I had to go through in order to try and get things equal, and it was a long time before things got equal. Welcome to the Great Western Forum and a festive atmosphere here in Los Angeles. It is a sellout and then some. They have had to open the upper decks to accommodate ticket demand here at the Forum and expecting a crowd of some 12,000 people. All of them here to witness the latest chapter in the history of women's sports, the debut of the WNBA. This was 1980. A lot of the LPGA Tour events were playing for a mere $15,000 for the winners. We were still four years away from the running of the first women's marathon at the Olympics. And we were 16 years away from playing the first WNBA game. So it's unfair, but not completely surprising that women's college sports weren't treated with the same respect that men's college sports were. The inequality was everywhere. When I first started coaching, we had a mother who made uniforms for, for my girls because <laughs> we didn't have we didn't have uniforms. We certainly didn't have any budgets for uniforms. Uh, they didn't get free equipment. Um, they didn't get free golf. They had to buy their own golf balls. And so, you know, back then it was um, that was just again that was the way it was. But now, when you look at it, and and uh, manufacturers can't wait to outfit the women. And a lot of schools have contracts, like ASU is an Adidas school, and so Adidas supplies the uniforms for the players, and um, Ping's in our backyard, and so a lot of our players play Ping. And uh, again, that's equipment that is, is donated to the program, donated to the girls. Uh, it's been, it's been um, a big, huge change for many, many years. The men at that time had matching uniforms. Just because Title IX as a law had been put into effect didn't mean everything was rosy. 
Schools who weren't in compliance ended up in court when parents of young women sued them for inequality. Studies are being done now that show still many schools haven't achieved the levels of proportional equality that Title IX lays out. One reason for that is because schools are technically in compliance with Title IX by being able to prove that they are making changes towards achieving proportional equality. Back in the 1980s, when the men's program was taken care of by the university, Linda had to be entrepreneurial. What I realized is I, I couldn't keep blaming people and so um, and complaining about it. I thought, well, I'm going to do something about this. And so we started having fundraisers. I would have fundraisers. I would go out to the country clubs and have the members play with our girls, and they discovered how incredible these women were and how... Um, well-mattered they were and how smart they were. And so they started opening their checkbooks and, and donating to the program so that we could uh, afford to uh, buy uniforms and some of the things that they needed. But the other thing that I did is I, I went to the different manufacturers. I would go to the PGA show and I'd meet the manufacturers and the presidents of the company. And I'd say, hey, we have a really good program. If you'll donate clothes to our program, we'll wear them in competition and you'll get free advertising. And they thought that was pretty cool. So that, that was again, something that I did. And then locally Antigua was, a uh, was here in, 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 here in Phoenix. And so, um, they were very kind to our program. And before we had manu- we, before we had the large companies that were looking at us, that were taking like Nike and Adidas and some of those schools that were Nike and Adidas schools, Antigua provided us with, with the shirts that we could wear. During Linda's time coaching, she saw another big change in women's college golf that Title IX helped spur on. The talent pool grew outside of the United States. Suddenly, there was an influx of international players. With full-ride scholarships available to coaches, they were able to recruit talent from across the globe. Knowing that they can come to the United States and get an education and have great competition is enticing to them. And I think, too, because we have so many programs here, and again, Title IX is responsible for all the programs that have expanded and how many teams now, how many schools now have women's golf programs. And they, they made it, Title IX made it possible for this. And also the scholarships that, that were there. And strangely enough, women in Division One collegiately, women have, can have six scholarships, and the men only get four and a half. And so we, we did come out on top on that one. And again, that was because you have to have equality in scholarships and football kind of skews the curve on that. And so each university has to have equal number of scholarships. So in women's golf, having six scholarships and you only travel with five players, that was a big bonus for us. We saw more and more, more and more women that wanted to get involved in college golf because there was a scholarship available for them. Wow. And Madeline Sagstrom has her first LPGA Tour title. Madeline Sagstrom is one of those players. The 29-year-old from Sweden is now an LPGA Tour winner. But a decade ago, she was a college freshman at Louisiana State University. She took the full ride there to improve her game, hopeful that she would get good enough to turn pro. I knew that to be the best, I needed to have the same opportunities as the best players in the world do. So so that was kind of my thing. Either either you turn pro or you move to America. And I wasn't good enough to turn pro. I wanted to have that 
I'll have a few more years under my belt. Have a backup plan was a big thing. Just what if golf doesn't turn out well? Like what if I can't play this game? I wanted to have an education under my belt. Had it not been for that scholarship, Sagstrom wouldn't have had the opportunity to see if she could get her game to the LPGA Tour level. 18-year-old Sagstrom wasn't good enough to turn pro. But after four years of collegiate golf, which included being named SEC Player of the Year and a year on the Epson Tour where she won three times, she was ready for the big tour. The scholarship was a key piece in giving Sagstrom's game time to develop into one that was tour-ready. It, it was a big big reason why I could go because my parents didn't, I mean, they couldn't, first of all, afford it. And, or, and you didn't have, I didn't have to find the means to... Um, to pay for that myself. That was the whole reason why I really could move over here. They have that opportunity. Coming from Sweden, where the most popular sports are winter sports and soccer, Saxon was immediately struck by how seriously Americans take golf. I remember when I first came to LSU, we went to a restaurant and they're like, oh, you guys are not from here. Where are you from? And, and they're like, oh, I'm from Sweden. I'm going here for golf. And they're like, Oh, you play golf? That's so cool. And I was like, I've never heard of golf school before. So um, you came, you became, I mean, I came here and I became an athlete. I think that was really, everyone really appreciated the sport that we do, no matter what it was. It was really cool to be, uh, like, to people look at you in a different way than they did at home. That moment Sagstrom had at the restaurant shows something else Title IX did for women's golf and women's sports. It demanded that they be taken seriously. By making that change at the collegiate level, there was suddenly this trickle-down effect. People wanted to be part of women's college sports. Junior programs improved. Elementary school and high school sports improved. It's not just the opportunities, it's the mindset in this nation. The mindset that girls and women should be playing sports. And with that, the quality of play improved too. Say over at 16. Short par three, just a pitching wedge. Gets it done in the classroom and on oh, the golf course. How about that? Hey, nice. <laughs> Whoa. That's not fair. You're perfect. Wow. 4.0 <laughs> grades. You're making an ace. Yeah. GPA goes up. Handicap goes down. Diet Coke's all around. <laughs> well, I look back on it now. I stopped coaching in 2001, so it's been 20 years since I've actually been a head coach and I look at the scores now and oh my goodness they're, I mean if we broke 300 that was really good and now they're 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 shooting the 280s I mean it's uh it's an amazing transition uh, I think players have gotten better and better everything in golf's gotten better the equipment's gotten better the golf courses are better groomed but I think too again being able to to have a great junior girls golf program I think now we have so many more girls that are playing golf in, in the junior level. And so feeding into the universities is, is much easier. Amelia Migliaccio knows as well as anyone how good American college golf has gotten. The 22-year-old played three seasons at Wake Forest and has one year of eligibility left that she plans to use while she's in graduate school. I was able to give my parents and my sister a tour of the facilities, specifically the nutrition, sports nutrition and the workout facilities, because we had gotten a, they had finished redoing our gyms, maybe my sophomore year or something. So I was really excited to show them. And they were just in awe. Like, I mean, you know, there's like 40 squat racks <laughs> and all of these machines and the machines are 
you know, just very designed to be very safe and very effective and, and just so many things. And so, yeah, they were just kind of awestruck and just, you know, then you feel really happy, you know, your kid is in a good place with they're being taken care of. So they probably felt both like, wow, we didn't have any of this. And also I'm really feel really comforted by all these great things. Cause I know Amelia's, you know, doing well. Amelia made the most of the opportunity she had while at Wake Forest. She won five times as a Demon Deacon and has competed internationally for the United States at the Curtis Cup and the Pan American Games. She's been ranked as high as third in the world amateur rankings. I'm just so thankful for my scholarship because, um, yeah, like I, I wouldn't be here without it and I wouldn't have gotten all the training that I would have had without it. When Amelia talks about training, she's not just talking about golf. Instead of pursuing professional golf as she always thought she would, Amelia has changed course and works in golf media for Golf Channel. She'll be doing hole-by-hole commentating for the U.S. Women's Open. So training isn't just a reference to the gym. Amelia's degree has trained her for the professional world. Though Amelia knows she doesn't want to turn pro, she still plays competitively. In June, she'll be playing for Team USA at Marion in the Curtis Cup. Amelia's mom, who goes by Ricky, has been there for Amelia every step of her competitive golf career. Ricky played college golf at the University of Arizona, where Annika Sormstam was one of her teammates. That's something else Title IX has done. Women who were amongst the first wave to enjoy the benefits of Title IX are now raising college athletes themselves. Female athletes are being raised by female athletes. Instead of dad being the go-to resource for all things sports, Amelia calls her mom. It's kind of flopped from a lot of people that I know, but my dad, I think he played he played baseball in like middle school, but definitely didn't come from a sport background. They were all... Um, my grandparents emigrated to Venezuela from Italy, so they were all, you know, study, 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 so you can go to the States and get an education. Um, so that's kind of his background. And my mom, she saw the opportunity of her, her older brother swam for Pepperdine. So, and they're from Sweden. So she was like, okay, well, I can, you know, play a sport and, uh, be able to maybe come to the States on a full scholarship and and get my education that way. So that's, so she kind of grew up in a sport family. They played golf all the time on vacation and stuff. So yeah, I definitely lean on her for a lot of sports. Um, And she was very supportive. Like, even though she definitely was hoping that I would play golf at some point, I wanted a private goalie trainer because I was very into soccer and she, you know, got me that Um, she helped me with certain drills and soccer and other sports. I wanted to do rock climbing. So she signed me up for rock climbing. So she was very supportive in um, just my drive to kind of play different sports and and do that. And yeah, it's, it's really nice to have someone that I can really look up to and just relate, relate to someone um, in that aspect. I found it easy to talk to Amelia about this because I was raised by an elite golfer too. People always assume my dad taught me how to play. I love watching their faces, seeing them caught off guard when I tell them that it's my mom who's responsible for my swing. My dad's a great athlete, but mom played pro golf. With each generation that goes through collegiate athletics since the passing of Title IX, the more young women there will be who are raised by female athletes. 
I wonder how many generations it's going to take for that assumption that dads are the ones shepherding all sports goals to go away. Amelia grew up hearing stories about her mom's college golf career, where they were basically wearing men's golf clothes because the women's options were so limited. How working out, nutrition, and sports psychology were still somewhat uncharted territory as opposed to standard offerings for college players. But beyond the stories, her mom gave her advice that only a woman who'd played competitive golf could have given. For example, a big thing that she knew was important at a young age was it's important to learn how to win. So she didn't sign me up for these big tournaments just because I could get into them. She also never played for rankings. So a lot of people would try to play to, cause these have high points and it gets your ranking up. She was like, you need to learn how to win. So I played for a long time in just local events and I would win them. And so, I mean, I've, you know, made, and I, or I would finish in top five and she was really good at, she never talked about winning a ranking like she was like Amelia did you know that you finished like top five like all the time when you were a kid and I was like I had no idea <laughs> like I I think I was player of the year in North Carolina when I think I was in a freshman in high school I had no idea I thought this was a banquet like just any team banquet and my mom was like yeah you're player of the year and I was like oh wow <laughs> like I was definitely a little bit of an oblivious golfer <laughs> and I think she realized she knew that like as a kid, you don't need to know all these things about where you stand and just a lot of external things that can be very easy to kind of get caught up in. But also I never played in, in like AJGA junior all-star. Like I didn't play in all those. She was like, if when you're ready uh, to play in an, you know, an AJGA or sort of big junior tournaments, you, you, you'll, you'll be ready. You'll have enough points. So I had enough points from like other tournaments to like get into those events. So I think that that's a really big thing that if I have kids that are into golf and into sports, that's definitely something I'm going to take with me. If Amelia's mom didn't have the opportunity to play collegiate golf, she wouldn't have that knowledge of player development. You don't get that knowledge without experiencing it yourself. And beyond the competitive advantages Amelia experienced by her mom having been a competitive athlete herself, she found it made their relationship even stronger. We got so close because she um, would train me. I think that was another big advantage. I mean, she knew golf so well because she played it. So it wasn't that she just played it for fun. She played competitively and knew what it took to be able to become successful at it. So I think that was definitely an advantage for me because there was a lot of things that maybe she did that other people um, didn't do. And so I'm definitely really grateful for that. And we've reflected on, you know, just our journey together in a lot of ways. And I think her having that experience is just was so beneficial for me. Amelia's mom, Ricky, has been on the bag for her at big events. The Augusta National Women's Amateur was a highlight because, well, it's Augusta National. It was just surreal to be able to do that with her. And we have pictures all over the house uh, from that moment. And yeah, I'll always like look back on that. Another big one was in 2019 when her mom was caddying at the Pan American Games. There, Amelia won the individual gold. It was so emotional to be able to go through all those four days of stroke play, fly down to Peru and, and experience all that. It was, it was just incredible. The roles will be switched this summer. 
Ricky is going to try to qualify for the U.S. Women's Senior Am. Amelia will be on the bag. I'm just excited for her to like be the star of the show. <laughs> Thanks to Title IX, women athletes have, finally, been able to be the stars of the show. While all women's educational and athletic opportunities have increased from Title IX's historic decision, women's golf has seen growth that Linda could have barely imagined as she worked hard on her low salary in her basement office back in the 1980s. The trickle-down effect of Title IX has made women's junior golf stronger as girls pursue collegiate golf. The LPGA-USGA Girls Golf Program has been around for 30 years, and already more than 500,000 girls have gone through the program. The effect has trickled up, too. Instead of playing for those $15,000 winner checks LPGA Tours played for in the 1980s, now LPGA Tour players are playing for record purse dollars, with three tournaments offering $1 million or more to the winner. We all try and uh, make sure that our our athletes now understand that there were things haven't always been as good as they are now, and to be able to go back and be thankful for the people who came before us. Local Knowledge is produced by Greg Gottfried with editorial guidance from Sam Weinman. Our music is Shine by Jazzar. You can subscribe to Local Knowledge wherever you get your podcasts, and we welcome a review as well. Also, for expert picks, betting advice, and insights into the action on the PGA Tour, please also make sure to subscribe to our Be Right podcast.